Hello, I'm Sarah Day, Policy and Research Manager at HFMA, and you're listening to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS finance. The HFMA is not just a UK organisation. There are HFMAs in the USA and Australia too, and this episode is truly international. We start by hearing from Sean Eldridge, President of HFMA Australia and Chief Financial Officer at Bendigo Health in Victoria. For them, COVID-19 is hitting just as they approach their flu season, so they are attempting to manage the disease very closely and seem to be having some success so far. By contrast, we then speak to Joe Pfeiffer, Chief Executive of HFMA USA, who shares a broad range of experience from members across the United States. The cancellation of elective procedures is having a huge financial impact on their healthcare system, but while we may hear a lot in our media about partisan politics in the country, aid packages and support are being agreed with very little challenge. The USA and Australia may be a long way away, but the challenges and the solutions being tried are very similar to our own. There are lessons to be learned and shared from across the globe. So without further ado, let's hear from Sean. Hello, Sean. Thank you for joining us today all the way from Australia. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about how you came to be involved in this? Thanks, Sarah. Yes, um, I, I can. I'm actually the, the president of HFMA Australia and I'm working in Bindigo Health, which is in the state of Victoria in Australia. For those who are familiar with Australia, it's in the it's, it's in the bottom right hand, but not, not quite uh, separated by sea like Tasmania. Uh, how have I become available to, um, to, to be in this? Clearly, there's something that's embracing our globe at the moment, being the COVID-19 um, virus. And I think both Australia and the UK, and I understand also America, we're all probably... Uh, reacting to this scenario a little bit differently. So we just uh, felt that it was a good opportunity to get together, have a bit of a discussion about what's happening in Australia and try and uh, try and glean a bit from what we're doing over here. Thank you. So people listening are probably not that familiar with the Australian healthcare system. So can you give us a brief overview, like who funds it and whether it varies between the states? It does, it does vary between the states. So the, the funding of the health system is done in, it's, it's done from a few different sources. So firstly, the Commonwealth funds part of the, the, the general health system. The Commonwealth, though, does fund our Medicare system. So the Medicare system, basically all of our GP attendances, uh, Medicare, which is the Commonwealth system, will, will pay for... Uh, quite a quite a portion of of that. Certainly, if um, if the doctors are bulk billing, uh, that's covered by the Medicare system. As far as the broader health system, so talking about um, a, acute health, that's actually a bit of a mix. So the Commonwealth funds part of that system, around about forty five percent, and that's through a model called the National Weighted Activity Model. And then the states fund the balance. So that's um, the, the states are actually responsible for running the hospitals in their state or territory. There's six, six states and two territories within Australia. 
and each of them does it does it slightly differently. Can you tell us a little bit about your own organisation and where you fit into the system? Sure. So we are what's known as a as a regional hospital uh, within the Victorian system. So the Victorian system is made up of around about eighty six individual hospitals uh, of varying sizes. Our our budget, which I haven't converted to um, to English currency, but our budget's about five hundred and fifty million dollars Australian, and it's it's quite a varied uh, organisation. So it it looks after a, a number of different areas. So not only does it look after acute care and have all that acute care has in it, such as ICU. Um, special care babies unit, mental health, allied health and palliative care. It also has a number of residential aged care facilities that, um, that it actually runs. It, it caters to, basic, basically it caters to a, like the, the regional city, if you like, but also a lot of the outskirts. And it has... Um, it has programs running out of many other different uh, cities and towns throughout Victoria, predominantly north. So obviously COVID-19 is affecting Australia, but looking at the recent Australian government statistics, it seems the number of cases are really quite low and most of these can be traced back to foreign travel. So I was wondering what the approach is to tackling the spread in Australia and how you're managing to contain it so effectively. Yeah, so I think at last count, I think the number of cases in Australia was up over 6,000. Victoria um, currently has about 1,291 cases. Uh, I've had 14 deaths, which is probably low in comparison to a lot of other countries. And there's a suggestion that uh, 1,118 of those 1,291 cases have uh, recovered. At, at a local level in Bendigo, we've had nine cases, so it's it's quite 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 small. How do, how have we gone about making sure that uh, that we don't have as many uh, cases and that we don't have spread? Uh, we've put some stringent, and I, I I think they hesitate to call them lockdown, but it's like some lockdown measures. So. There has to be a good reason for you to, to leave your house. I'm working from home at the moment and probably 50% of my staff are, so around about 55 people working from home. Uh, also, the four reasons uh, to go out are if it's related to getting health assistance, uh, exercising, um, which is generally walking, uh, or, or going for a run in, with, with uh, social distancing, clearly. Uh, also, if you're trying to get food or supplies, so provisions, or you're heading out for work within some, some defined industry. So um, I, I guess in keeping things down, we're, we're um, obviously a, an island nation, if you like, covered uh, or all the way around us is water. So I guess that's something that sort of helps us where other countries might have um, a bit more crossing of borders. Yeah. 
So is it impacting how you're running your organisation and delivering services then? Obviously, you've got people working at home, but is it having any other impact as well? It it is. um, I actually think our organisation has... um, has been at the forefront of, of making early decisions. We've got a, uh, a fairly um, ahead of the curve CEO who is keen to, I think in his words, he, he'd prefer to be remembered for being out front and not needing it rather than, um, than not being out front and having to explain why we weren't. So he's... He's, he's taken a focus to ensure that we're doing all we can. I guess we've made a lot of calls on things like visitors, visitor numbers, how often, how long they can they can spend on on what's you know, in, in what circumstances. So there's there's been quite quite a difference in that respect. We've also uh, seen how quickly. The organisation's been able to to, to mobilise itself. Uh, we, we are in the fortunate position at, in in Bendigo where we've just opened a new hospital, and the old hospital is still co-located on site. So we were able to utilise some of the facilities of the old hospital to to set up uh, screening clinics, those types of things. So that's been been really helpful, I guess. My colleagues would describe us as being in a bit of a cat-like state, state ready for, for what actually is coming next because we've, we've actually uh, entered into some arrangements or the state's entered into some arrangements with the private hospital setting and has allowed us to work in conjunction with the private hospital. So we've started decanting some of our beds, particularly in the rehab area, into a different hospital in preparedness for what might come. Naturally, we, we, we are hoping that we don't, don't need those beds, but at the moment we've got a lot of spare beds in anticipation of what might be ahead of us. And are you anticipating uh, quite a peak to come yet then? So there, there, there's been projections and the projections have been changing. Um, a lot of projections are suggesting that uh, June, July are going to be quite a big, a big time for us. I look at uh, how well we've, how well we seem to have contained it, and I'm hopeful that uh, with everything that we've done, that it's not going to get, um, get too much worse. But I, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we just believed that that wasn't going to happen without leaving in place the. The, the the measures that we've got in place to to try and keep ourselves um, keep keep ourselves ready for for an increase in the curve our our curve in Victoria seemed to head up quite sharply and and is now flattening out uh, we're very conscious in that we're coming into the flu season as well the influenza season. So influenza in conjunction with coronavirus would not be a good mix. So uh, we're very focused on that. But what we are finding is with social isolation that uh, we're having less cases of influenza as well as people keep themselves 
uh, isolated from others. So it's, it's, it's having a, a good impact on two fronts. We've seen in some of our hospitals and, and A&E, we've seen a drop in attendances for other issues, um, less strokes, less heart attacks and the like, um, which suggests perhaps people aren't seeking care when they need it. Are you seeing anything similar in Australia? Absolutely. So we're, we're seeing all these emergency um, key performance indicators and targets that we're meant to be meeting where we, we would traditionally... Uh, struggle to to meet those targets, but uh, we're meeting them quite easily at the moment and finding that we're actually sending some of our staff off on leave because the the numbers through our emergency department have absolutely dropped. And the same with our bedstock. So whilst um, we, as I said, we were decanting some of our rehabilitation patients, uh, we've got a number of beds throughout the hospital that um, that are empty, which is uh, pretty pretty unheard of when the when the pressure's on, but people are keeping away and looking after themselves, so that's a good thing. And one of the discussions that has been had a lot all over the world, I believe, I think, is around PPE and ventilators. Again, mm. is that something which you're um, battling with in, in Victoria? Absolutely. Um, so part of um, part of my role. Uh, as the Executive Director of Finance and Resources. So not only do I wear the Chief Finance Officer hat, I also wear the Chief Purchasing Officer hat as well. So very, very focused. In fact, that's probably where uh, probably 50 to 60% of my focus is at the moment is in making sure that we've got um, PPE. There's, it, it would be fair to say we've, um, as a as, as the state of Victoria, the state's approached it a bit differently in that they've opened a central warehouse which is managing the key PPE items through it. We found ourselves a little bit ahead of the curve in that when we saw what was going on overseas, we, we had a, a, a chief materials management director who, who took the initiative to ensure that we had a lot of stock in very early so we've been um, benefiting from that the big items that we're struggling with over here are, are swabs and gowns are probably two of our big ones and the other ones probably thermometers um, so it's just very very hard to, to to get those items and when you're relying on them coming from overseas and in a lot of cases coming from China, uh, that that puts a whole lot of pressure on. And I'm sure you've seen similar in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. What approach are you taking to testing at people with, with symptoms at the moment? So initially, initially with the concerns around PPE, we probably took a fairly targeted approach so people needed to pretty much exhibit all the all the symptoms but um, today the Victorian uh, health minister advised that anyone that's got um, flu-like or respiratory systems now will be tested. Our, our concern with that in part is that um, we are very short on the the swabs and the testing kits 
So being able to, to cope with that would be of concern, although we're finding that our, um, our, our testing clinics, uh, our screening clinic has, has uh, dropped away in numbers quite considerably at the moment, so it's not a problem at present. So have you learnt anything about your, how your system works as a consequence of COVID-19? And is there, have you had any lessons that will change perhaps how you operate when the pandemic is over? I think, I think it's been really interesting to see how the workforce has responded. I know in the past we've always talked about having contingency plans for if we have a disaster. And this, this whilst we haven't declared it to be a disaster in, or a code brown as we would call it in Australia, uh, I, think, I think that it's shown us, particularly in the finance area, that we can work um, off-site and work effectively from home as long as as long as we've got uh, an intact uh, I, IT system that allows us to continue to operate. So uh, I think that it will allow us to perhaps change our employment arrangements a bit to become a little bit um, more creative in how we might do that. I think from a systems perspective. I guess one of the learnings that I've had is watching watching our CEO here lead early and I actually think that that takes a lot of guts to um to to head out and be ahead of the pack and potentially do that with with the department of of health lagging a bit behind so I think for me that's been a bit of a learning that in these times you need to Put yourself in front of the, the pack so that uh, you have better outcomes. I think it's shown um, that, as I said, half of my teams at home, half of them is is still on site. But uh, the focus that brings everybody together to get things done has been outstanding. There's been a few issues that have occurred in the metro areas um, they've had issues with car parking and, and 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 other major things that we haven't had locally because I guess whilst we still have car parks that we that we run the focus has been on working together not not on um, some of the other issues that sit around that so having have having people from different disciplines come together around the table I think has been has been a learning and I guess different different people from from different disciplines learning the value of everybody around the table so I'll probably approach things a little bit a little bit differently moving forward particularly uh, in involving our clinicians a bit more in some of the everyday decisions Excellent, thank you. It's been really fascinating talking to you, Sean, and hearing a perspective from completely the other side of the world, but also hearing how similar a lot of the issues are that we're facing and, and the approaches that we're taking. So it's been really helpful to talk to you. Thank you, Sean. Thanks very much, Sarah, for the opportunity and uh, take the opportunity from, from HFM Australia and uh, 
and from my my finance colleagues around the nation to wish you guys all the best in in how you're attacking um, the, the the virus that is in front of us and uh, yeah hope that you guys see um, a big turnaround over there as well. And now we move from Australia to the USA and join Joe Pfeiffer in Michigan. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us today all the way from America. Thank you for having me. Oh, that's no problem. Could you just explain how you've come to be involved in this uh, and what your role is? Uh, Well, again, it's just a pleasure to join you. And this is the first time for me to speak with uh, the the HFMA UK members. And so, again, thank you for having me. Uh, My role at HFMA is I'm the president and chief executive officer. And so what I tell people when I come across the pond is I'm the Mark Knight of the United States. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you. So could you start by just giving us a brief overview of the healthcare system in the US and, and how it's funded? And I know that's really complex. So just thinking specifically, how would the care of someone with COVID-19 be paid for? My understanding is there's really two main groups, the insured and the uninsured. Well, oh my gosh, that is, that is a very simple question and a very complex answer. So uh, <laughs> I will, I'll do my best to simplify this as much as I can. Um, and and I, it really is kind of three groups that in terms of COVID-19, but I'll get to that in a moment. Our health system is primarily based on a split between uh, government-provided uh, insurance coverage and employer-based. Uh, on the government side, we have two different programs. Um, there's variations within each, but generally speaking, two different programs. One, Medicare, which yeah. is care for the elderly. And then Medicaid, uh, which is care for uh, the uh, poor or indigent uh, population. And um, part of the difference between those two is that Medicare is, <clears throat> is uh, administered by our federal government, whereas Medicaid, uh, part of the funding comes from the federal government, part of the funding comes from the states, but it is min- administered uh, or run by the state. Uh, each individual state. So each okay. state has their own, now there's some similarities, but each state has their own criteria for who qualifies for Medicaid, and it's typically as a percentage of a poverty level. So for example, uh, a state might have uh, anybody qualifies for Medicaid at, at if their family income is less than 400% of the, the poverty level. So all of that is a simplistic view of our government side. Uh, on the employer-based side, most people, uh, as part of their employment uh, arrangement, um, uh, have health insurance that's provided. And, of course, there's all kinds of private insurance companies. Some are larger than others. Some cover the whole country. Uh, others uh, cover a certain, uh, just a certain geography. Uh, the third component, and you alluded to it in your question, is that, um, unfortunately, and much to the chagrin of many, we have a significant number of people that without health insurance in this country. And uh, mm-hmm. I think there's somewhere around 20, 25 million of uninsured uh, folks in, uh, in the U.S. And that's a, so, the, so within all of that, those three components, there's a tremendous amount of complexity and, 
Uh, I know that um, when people come over from the UK to look at a health system in the United States and we take them to our billing offices, they're amazed at how many people that we have that that do coding and billing uh, because the, the rules through all of these different programs vary significantly. Specifically uh, for COVID in this environment, uh, oh, I might say one more thing. Most plans, um, and especially on the employer-based side, have um, either co-insurance, which is a, the individual pays for a percentage of, uh, of a service that's provided, maybe 10%, maybe 20%. Uh, in deductibles, whereas uh, an individual would be responsible for the first X number of dollars of healthcare claims, maybe $1,000, maybe $2,500, maybe even $5,000 for an individual or a family. Now, to get to the COVID, um, these are covered services. Uh, so the health plans and the government are covering those. Most plans have waived or are not collecting uh, the deductibles. And so um, so most individuals, if they have insurance, uh, are able to get coverage for uh, COVID testing, um, it, it, the, uh, the services that are rendered uh, for COVID patients are covered typically without coinsurance or deductibles. So that's a very simple answer to a very complex health insurance environment in the United States. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So in theory, how much uh, autonomy do the states have in deciding upon their response to the disease? Well, in short, um, a lot. And um, you have to keep in mind that even in the, the, even the origin of our country and even the name of our country, the United States of America, and that is um, that we have a long history of debate, really, not just healthcare, but all kinds of of uh, policy issues, a long debate about states' rights, what control each individual state has versus control by the federal government. And one of the things about the United States that's a little bit different from the UK is that uh, my perception is anyway that the UK uh, population is more comfortable with <clears throat> national-wide uh, or nationwide uh, policy, whereas there are a number of people in the United States that feel very strongly about individual states' rights. <clears throat> so um, the states have a lot of autonomy when uh, deciding about the response to the disease. I know uh, President Trump made some comments the other day uh, about <clears throat> uh, that, you know, the, that he alone has the ability to uh, open up our economy. Mm. I'm not uh, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a constitutional expert, but conventional wisdom by so many people have made comments that that his comments really violate our United States Constitution. So it's a long list of rhetorical comments that that comes um, from our president. And um, uh, but the, the essence of that question is that the states have, uh, a, again, a tremendous amount of authority, not just with our state regulated insurance uh, arrangement, but even in, um, uh, you know, our, our social distancing, our stay at home policies are all really done at a state by state level. Um, so again, in short, the states have a lot of control over when to open up the economy again. The states have a lot of control over how insurance works in each individual state. And many times our federal government is in a situation of trying to encourage people to 
uh, or states to do things, but don't really have the authority. Okay. So does that mean that the way that the country is reacting in terms of, um, say, lockdown and social distancing varies across all of the states? It's it's um, not one common policy. Yeah, the, technically uh, and specifically, the answer to your question is yes. There's not one uh, one uh, state or uh, um, nationwide policy. I would say that most states. I mean, there's a lot of commonality about uh, or at each state about what what those lockdown policies are. There's a few states that are uh, kind of an uh, uh, you know anomalies in terms of they may not be as strict as others. Um, I know my state, the state of Michigan, where I live, our governor is because uh, and because our state is one of the highest uh, levels of of uh, confirmed cases, mostly in the Detroit area. Uh, our state has pretty strict lockdown policies right now, um, and those would be different from our neighboring states right around us. So there is some variation around the country, but generally speaking, they're very they're pretty consistent. So much of what we're hearing here about the situation in America links back to politics. I mean, the whole worldwide response to COVID-19 is very political, but it sounds to us as if the situation is getting treated very differently depending upon whether um, it has a Republican or a Democrat outlook. And I'm just wondering that from a healthcare point of view, are the politics making it difficult to respond to the disease as you might wish, or are we only hearing one perspective on it? Well, I guess I, my, my first thought is that you should be careful and not overplay what you either read about or watch on TV in term, coming from the media. Our, one of the differences, again, this is my perception anyway. Uh, well, this part's not a perception. This, this part is very clear. Our media uh, is very partisan. Um, if you tune into, uh, you know, Fox versus MSNBC, it's almost like you're listening to two completely different stories. Hmm. Um, and my perception is that's quite different from what I would look, at least what I've experienced when I've come across, uh, across the pond and what I've experienced with BBC or Sky. And so that's one, one big difference is, um, and, and that, <clears throat> that re- so the reporting is very political. And it plays into a very divisive atmosphere that we have here in this country. So I think I would just um, think about a word of caution about whether politics is driving a significant uh, amount of difference depending on if they're Republican or Democrat. Now, there are some differences, and um, but these relief packages, uh, first there was a $1 trillion relief package, then a $2 trillion relief package, and there's another one brewing in, the, in our Congress that will likely be passed. Those things passed in lightning speed um, with very little resistance, and there was some bickering in there between the two different parties. But, but by and large, the, dis- the way I would state is that by and large, the decisions are being made are both at a state level and at a federal level are relatively apolitical. Um, they're, they're getting through it and, and much more so than what the media would describe. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> um, so we mostly hear about New York again, obviously, um, and we've heard that New York needs 30,000 more ventilators and I'm assuming that many other states are in need of more equipment and obviously personal protective equipment in short supply everywhere. So how are you dealing 
with these shortages? Well, that's one of the biggest dilemmas with, with this environment. And I actually, I speak with some, some personal interest in this. My, my daughter is what we call here a physician assistant. Um, they're, uh, it, that role, and I can't remember the the equivalent term over in the UK, but it, you have a similar role that they can do a lot of what a physician does. They can prescribe drugs, and and um, they like in her case, she takes care of uh, uh, cardiac and pulmonary patients in our intensive care unit in one of our hospitals. And so I've talked with her about you know this whole issue of supplies, and it is a big issue. Um, she is uh, reusing. Um, uh, masks, the N95 masks. Um, there are bidding wars, uh, you know, and, and scams. <laughs> I know hospitals have thought they were purchasing supplies and then um, it turned out to be some kind of a scam or the supplies got held up at the border for some reason. Um, and it, it's an issue. I don't know about the 30,000 ventilators in New York. That I think that probably is a little bit of an exaggeration. And and the numbers are starting to level off in uh, New York City, so um, there's hope there. But generally speaking, this issue of supplies is uh, is a very significant issue. And here's another example, and I heard about this one just yesterday. Uh, I heard about this from some of our members that that, that what they used to spend maybe fifty cents uh, per N ninety five N ninety five mask, and just to keep in perspective. Uh, one dollar uh, in the U.S. is worth about 79 pence, uh, at least when I looked yeah. last night. So when I quote some of these numbers that, you know, that gives you perspective. So before this pandemic, uh, they were spending about 50 cents per N95 mask. Now it's not uncommon for our members in their hospitals to report uh, having to buy N95 masks for five dollars per mask. Wow, and so that's a that's really disconcerting, and uh, I don't know the reason behind that other than price gouging, which um, is pretty upsetting. Um, so those are the kinds of issues that they're dealing with. Um, there was shortages of um, of uh, the ventilators, and uh, but one of the things that's happening here is that there's been a tremendous um, uh, support from the private sector. And so we have uh, some of our manufacturing companies that are repurposing themselves to both manufacture uh, PPE, uh, even manufacture uh, uh, some of the um, other equipment that's being, that's being used, in, including the ventilators. Um, there's there are a number of different things being done to sterilize um, uh, you know, some of the equipment using, uh, like the masks, um, ultra, ultraviolet re- irradiation, uh, vaporized hydrogen peroxide to sanitize N95 masks. So there's been a, and there's also been a huge, and I saw this on uh, one of the news um, sites this morning in the UK, some volunteers um, that are making PPE, that same thing's happening in the United States. And yeah. so people around the country, it's almost like a war effort where people around the country are railing to support our caregivers, which has been really gratifying to see. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, and what approach are you taking to testing? Or does that vary um, across each state? 
Wow, that's a really interesting environment. And unfortunately, you have to be uh, much more clinically knowledgeable than I am to understand this. But I can say this, there's been an explosion of uh, innovation and companies um, developing different testing methodologies. And um, the and the problem is that there's um, there's not a uniform test that the scientists or the physicians uh, are tending to say is the best. Um, and um, but there are there's an explosion of organizations that are developing and rolling out these tests. And I can say that the testing environment is much better today than it was a week ago or two weeks ago. Now the dilemma comes in almost more in economic terms is is because there's a close relationship between testing uh and at least a perceived relationship between testing and returning to normal in terms of our economic activity there's some people that believe that um we could return to normal on a geographic basis in other words some areas some cities might still be in a lockdown where others uh people are free to uh to move about to really do that effectively without looking at second and third waves or surges of the pandemic spreading is through widespread testing. And so you'd have to have tests. Mm -hmm. Some people believe that to really be able to do that, you'd have to be able to test about 80% of our population. Well, with over 300 million people in this country, you can see those numbers are overwhelming. Um, So I don't know where this is all going to go. I can say that the testing environment is still a problem. We still don't have enough tests. Um, we, it would be great if we could, uh, test people that are asymptomatic. Um, that's just not the case right now, but it is a better testing environment than it was just a few weeks ago. So I want to ask you a few questions about the sort of the healthcare system really, and the impact that this is having. Um, what, what's the biggest change you've seen in the healthcare system as a consequence of the pandemic? Oh gosh, that's an easy one. Um, it's been amazing to watch the uh, the emergence of virtual visits or telehealth or uh, somehow seeing your provider um, with your phone or computer as opposed to going into the hospital or going into uh, a physician's office. Um, there are doctor's offices. Now, again, keep in mind, some of these doctor's offices are part of health systems. Some of them operate independently, you know, legally independently. But many physician uh, practices have completely shut down to uh, walk-in traffic. And um, some of them are suffering significantly. Others are, well, I'm sure they're all suffering significantly, but others are are able to to have their patients visits through a virtual visit, including um, uh, you know being able to use video capabilities to either you know look down someone's throat or look at a rash on their hands or whatever it might be. Uh, in same thing with health systems. Uh, now this this technology was there before, obviously, um, with a very slow acceptance rate, both by the provider community here and also by the general public. In fact, I've had a number of health systems tell me that prior to the pandemic, they had about 90% of their visits uh, were live and in person. 
and 10% done in some kind of virtual uh, way through the phone or a computer. And that that has, in literally weeks, has done a complete flip. And that it's like 10% of their visits are now live and in person, and 90% are virtual. That kind of switch in a matter of weeks is... Um, Unprecedented. I, 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 you know, it it takes a lot to change how healthcare is provided in this country, and I think everywhere, um, it takes a long time for people to feel comfortable with it, both on the provider side and the consumer side. This has been literally like flipping a switch, and um, part of the talk now is that that feels saying about the genies out of the bottle. Uh, it's going to be hard to put that genie back in the bottle. It's going to be hard to go back to that 90-10 split where everything, almost everything is delivered in person. We believe that this, this uh, acceptance of virtual visits is going to be permanent, at least at some level. And that's really interesting because we've obviously seen a similar thing here. I don't know about the percentages, but much more virtual contact with patients is becoming normal and a similar speed of change as well. Yeah, and I I like it. I I think it's a great idea because who likes to get in the car, drive X number of minutes to you know go park and navigate your way to wait in the waiting room for a certain amount of time? That whole process, depending on where you're going, could take hours. <clears throat> it's much better to to uh, dial someone up on the phone and um, or your computer and get services that way for those things that can be covered. I think it's much more convenient, and that's why I think it's going to stick. Yeah, excellent. And just thinking about the less presentations, um, we've seen quite a drop in attendances and admissions for things like strokes and heart attacks and cancer referrals. Are you seeing something similar there? That has been by far the biggest impact on um, health systems uh, in our country. So one of the things that happened early on in this pandemic was that our federal government um, through our centers of Medicare and Medicaid, um, asked uh, our hospital providers to essentially eliminate as many of the elective procedures as possible. Now, heart attacks and strokes don't fall into that elective category. <laughs> Nobody chooses to have a heart attack. But <clears throat> things like um, knee replacements or you know other types of surgeries, um, they've been asked to um, hold off on those to create room in the hospitals for the pandemic surge. Yeah. And that has happened across the country. <clears throat> and it has been financially devastating to hospitals. Um, and uh, it, so a, a typical hospital right now would have would be operating at about 50% of their normal revenue. And many of them, so you hear about New York City and Detroit and New Orleans and some of those big cities this is a very geographic um, pandemic, as uh, at least in its current state in the United States. So the hospitals that are out in other communities, like the town I live in, Grand Rapids, we have a number of, of COVID cases, but not nearly as many. So the revenue impact for, the, for that uh, on these hospitals has been um, just unprecedented. And, and uh, to say it's huge is, <laughs> is an understatement. Um, in terms of cases like you know, heart attacks and, and um, strokes, and I would throw trauma into that. Here's an interesting statistic I just heard about. And for uh, just for one week time period in the month of March, 
we had fewer overall deaths in the United States. Uh, in the same week last year, in this week of March, we had like 55,000 deaths for all causes. And this same week this year, it was 45,000. Wow. And so what it tells you is we're just, we're less active. And so we're not driving as much. I'm sure that there are fewer heart attacks. I'm sure that there are fewer strokes. Perhaps some of those are related to activity. You know, it's interesting. You kind of laugh about it. If you if your sole objective was to uh, keep people from dying, then you would just tell everyone to stay home. <laughs> well, that's obviously not a long-term solution, but it does it, it has a couple different impacts. It, 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 you know, there are fewer people dying, um, but it's been a financial um, catastrophe for, for our uh, hospitals and health systems here. Yeah, so the future financial sustainability of the healthcare system is under threat, really? It is, and um, uh, it's, it depends on the, the the size and the nature of the health system or the hospital before this started. So one of our measurements, and I can't remember if this is used in the healthcare environment in the UK or not, but but because our hospitals are um, independent from our federal government and independent organizations, um, you know they have their own balance sheets, and um, we measure their balance sheet strength by a measurement days cash on hand. How many days expenses uh, do you have in terms of cash and investments on your balance sheet? Mm -hmm. And so it is not unusual for a hospital or a health system, a healthy one, before all this started to be at, say, 300 days cash on hand. In theory, it doesn't really play out like this, but in theory, that would suggest that if they closed down today, they would have enough cash to satisfy expense. If they had no more revenue today, they would have enough cash and expenses to, to last for uh, 300 days. Uh, because of the investment um, uh, market decrease and the huge losses that they're incurring, it's not uh, unusual for that health system to be going from about 300 days cash to 150 over just a couple months time period. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you're a health system that starts with 300 days, yeah, it's a kind of a bad thing. Not kind of, it's a very bad thing, but you could survive. If you're a health system that started with 100 days cash on hand, boy, they're scrambling for liquidity right now. And that's a lot of what organizations are doing is they're trying to shore up their balance sheets. They're getting lines of credit uh, established. They're doing what they can to make sure that they're balance sheets are as strong as they can possibly be while they're incurring these massive um, operating losses. So do you think that the system will look quite different after this? Do you think some organizations won't survive it and things may have to rationalize in some places? Yeah, I, you know, that's, um, uh, I wish I could, <laughs> that is such a, uh, again, a simple question. I think the short answer is yes, that there will need there will be some hospitals that will not be able to survive on their own. Um, there has already been a, uh, there has already been a, um, a movement toward mergers and acquisitions and the development of larger, uh, both from a geographic and then a revenue perspective, larger health systems. And my guess is that that will, that this environment will exacerbate that or increase that activity. So you'll see 
the continued development of larger um, and, and uh, you know, larger health systems, uh, multi-hospitals uh, getting together to form larger health systems. I think that will be the case. I think you're going to see in some of our rural communities, um, really just a maybe not a complete closure, but a redefinition of what it means to be a hospital. In other words, there's hospitals in some of our small towns and cities that might have 25 inpatient beds. Um, maybe that city doesn't, that town doesn't need an inpatient capacity. If you go back to our discussion about telehealth, maybe they need to have an environment where you can deliver babies and you can have emergency care and stabilize patients. Um, and then through telehealth, um, uh, you know, get a patient to a state where they could either be discharged without being an inpatient or transferred to a larger metropolitan hospital. Some of those things I think are already underway, and I think that will uh, continue to development. Whereas maybe it just doesn't make sense to have a a uh, full service, twenty four hour inpatient hospital in some of our uh, some of our local communities. Even within our big cities, I think you're going to see hospitals that will have to redefine the, the 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 types of services that they provide, just in order to, to withstand this financial blow. So I do think that there will be some shakeout after it's all said and done. But I would say it's very difficult in our country to uh, close a hospital. Um, they are community assets. They're they're viewed as uh, jewels within the community. They're a huge job provider within a community. It's a very difficult thing to close a hospital. So these end up being, you know, played out um, politically. They end up getting played out in the by the local media. They're very controversial. And so, closing a hospital or restructuring a hospital, even redefining a hospital, can be a very complicated process in this country. And here, obviously, <laughs> I read. I read that some states are thinking about beginning to reopen. So does that mean that you're beginning to think about recovery? Or is it too early? Well, that's, uh, <clears throat> that, well I, technically it's too early right now. There's a lot of talk about it in terms of how to go about um, opening back up. And, it, and some of it goes back to that testing that I was referencing earlier. You know, here's something that, um, that you're not going to hear about in the media, but it is, it is um, also a consideration and, and, uh, and factual. But social isolation has um, very negative long-term health implications. If you add to that, um, if we are in an extended economic downturn, a, an extended recession and uh, turning into a depression, that joblessness also has very significant long-term health implications. There are people that die from um, those things that and they fall into this category of what we call social determinants of health. And, and what you don't hear, I mean, what you see every day on the news, in fact, I have it on my TV in my office here, you know, how many people have died in the last, you know, X number or, or you know, X number of months um, because of COVID-19. What you're never really going to hear about because it's harder to pinpoint, but how many people die or suffer from social isolation and um, and uh, other uh, healthcare issues related to 
um, you know, not, not being out and about or not having a job, not having health insurance and all those kinds of issues. Yeah. You know, partly because those take longer to develop. So I, where do those lines cross where the decline of COVID related um, uh, illnesses and deaths uh, gets to a point that it is where we want to avoid the increase in those social determinant of health related maladies. Uh, I don't know where that line is. And, and, and that's part of, uh, you know, part of our politics here is we are, we live in a hypercritical situation. They're a hypercritical environment. As soon as a politician decides to open up the economy, the next person that that dies from the COVID nineteen, there'll be all kinds of criticism for opening up the economy. Mm-hmm. But who's talking about that other side of the equation? That is, the economic impact on people's health, the the, the isolation impact on people's health. It's a long way of answering your question or asking answering your question is that we're not. I mean, really, nowhere is at a state where they could completely open up right now. But there is discussion about how do we go about making that decision? And the question will be how much of that decision is based on science and how much of it is based on perception and media reports um, and, um, you know, all of that, that kind of conversation versus, you know, just the, the pure scientific uh, knowledge. You know, people do die every day from all kinds of sources. And so how do we make that decision about, you know, opening back up when it does mean that people will die from, from COVID. Um, And from my perspective, it needs to be a data-driven decision that, that includes many other factors. Yeah, definitely. And that's a really interesting way of thinking about what the long-term impact of the pandemic is going to be. We're spending quite a lot of time talking about the future mental health impact. Um, for people who've been involved in the pandemic and been working in the hospitals as well. Oh my gosh, yes, that is something that again you hear about every once in a while, um, and that is real. Um, you know, another thing, if I could just go off on that tangent just for a moment here, but we don't do a very good job of of uh, funding and providing for mental health services. And I, I'm hopeful that this will start to shine a light on that, that we uh, would do a better job uh, of all kinds of mental health, ranging from substance abuse through, um, you know, all kinds of illnesses to those issues like social isolation and what that means to our society. And so I, I'm, I would like to think that maybe one of the outcomes from this whole thing, uh, if we could look back uh, with a... Um, objectivity would be that we would improve the way we uh, handle mental health in the United States. You've already talked about a lot of these, I think, but are there any other lessons that you think are going to come from this pandemic that will impact how healthcare is planned and delivered in the future? You've already mentioned the the technology and the virtual appointments. Are there other things that might change? Well, I might, um, I'm, I'm sure there is. And I, I, um, I might answer this question with, maybe in four ways, uh, uh, something I'm hopeful for, something I'm skeptical about, um, something I hope is a bare minimum, and then maybe some reality. On the hopeful side, I am hopeful that, and we just uh, touched on this a little bit with with mental health, but I would expand it to all of public health, that we, um, that we, 
we, we do, do a better job of funding um, of public health. Um, that is an unfunded part of our society. Uh, you know, if you look at the data compared to the UK, it's, it's uh, significantly different. I would hope that I am, I'm hopeful that after this is all said and done, that we would take a whiteboard <laughs> and just start fresh with, okay, how should we fund um, uh, uh, public health and, and coordinate that with the acute care sector of our healthcare industry? The skeptical side of me says that we have such a toxic uh, political atmosphere here, and it's not just and it's not just the the political side because we as a populace we 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 elect these folks, and so that same divisiveness is throughout our society um, that it's going to preclude um, a lot of honest debate. Uh, and deep debate about some of these issues. You know, I, I know um, that toxicity is oftentimes directed at our president, and certainly President Trump is bombastic in many of his comments, um, but it's it really is a two-way street. And while he might be more bombastic than others, um, that toxicity runs deep, and it's both uh, right and left of center. And I I am skeptical that that environment will really that it will preclude um, a uh, an honest debate about things like how health insurance should work and what about our uninsured and what about public health. What I hope as a bare minimum is that we study about pandemic uh, preparation. Um, a good friend of mine um, is uh, um, a gentleman by the name of Mike Levitt, who was uh, not only the governor of one of our states in Utah, but he was also uh, on one of the President Bush's um, cabinet as uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. And he had a quote recently, something along the lines of, if you prepare for a pandemic before it occurs, you're viewed as an alarmist. If you prepare for it after it's already started, you're too late. And I think what's become abundantly clear in this country is that, and I think quite frankly, you know, you make this argument around the world that we were largely unprepared for an, a, a pandemic um, of, this, uh, of this magnitude. And so I'm, I think at a bare minimum, everyone would agree that we have, we have to have better science and better preparation for, um, uh, for pandemic. So the reality to what's going to happen in the United States is got to uh, is also centered around that we have an election coming up in November, our presidential election, which is every four years. Um, we now know that it's going to be President Trump running against the Democrat uh, nominee Joe Biden. Um, we that may tell us something in terms of how that election, not just at the president level, but through all of Congress, both on the Senate and um, and uh, the congressional side, um, the, the House of Representatives side, it will tell us something about what uh, what the next direction of this uh, country might be. Um, and healthcare is going to be a central part of that debate. It would have been anyway, uh, because of our uninsured and because of the high amount of um, of cost that that healthcare uh, takes from uh, in our general economy. How much it is. Individuals have to pay through co-insurance and deductibles and so forth. 
it's it would have been a major part of this election anyway. You bring in this pandemic, and there's going to be a bright white spotlight on on healthcare as part of this next election. So the reality is, all of these things that we're talking about could go one direction or another depending on the outcome of this this election. And um, so those are that's that's uh, time will tell, right? <laughs> it will be very interesting to watch. And and those of us that uh, one thing it's a hundred percent clear to me is that. At the end of the day, there will still be a healthcare industry. People will still need us, and we still need to financially financially manage our healthcare environment, whatever the policies are, in a prudent way, which speaks well in the long run for organizations on both sides of the pond here, like HFMA. Joe, that's been so interesting. Thank you for taking that time to talk to us today. It's um, it's. Reassuring to hear that we're, we are facing a lot of the same problems, and um, but also that we're tackling them in a similar way as well. So thank you for that. Well, again, it's Sarah. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Part of our role at the HFMA is to support people to feel less isolated in their work and decision making at this time by sharing learning and experience from other regions and countries. HFMA Talk podcasts are being shared across the globe with our finance colleagues in the USA and Australia so that we can all learn from one another. To support our members and colleagues, all COVID-19 related briefings, blogs and news articles are openly available on our website, hfma.org.uk. There is no need to be a member to access these, so please tell your colleagues. We are providing regular podcasts throughout the pandemic covering a range of areas. If there is a particular aspect that you would like to hear about, please let us know. The HFMA will be providing webinars on a range of topics to both support the immediate needs of the NHS finance community and future CPD requirements. We have also launched a forum where finance colleagues from across the NHS can discuss issues and challenges in a safe space. You can sign up via the link in the network section of our website at hfma.org.uk. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with new episodes.